You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. You don't know what OPEC's going to do. They don't bring barrels back. Oil could go higher. I wouldn't have said 100s in the equation. Now I would say it is. The risk, though, is 40s probably also in the equation if this fighting broke out amongst the country. So I think we went from 55, 85 to probably 40 to 100. And I realize you can drive a truck through that range, but commodity commodities can be volatile. Thanks for tuning into Mining Stock Education. I'm Bill Powers, your host. And in today's show, we're going to be talking about the energy markets with a particular emphasis on oil. My guest today is Dan Pickering. He's the founder and chief investment officer of Pickering Energy Partners. Website is pickeringenergypartners.com. Dan brings more than 30 years of experience uh, in the equities in the energy sector, both on the sell and the buy side. So Dan, thanks for coming on the show and joining me today. You bet, Bill. Glad to be here. How about we start with you giving us an overview of what you do at Picker, Pickering Energy Associates, Energy Partners, excuse me. You bet. So Pickering Energy Partners, we're a, an energy-focused financial services business. We have uh, an asset management business where we invest in public and private energy companies. Uh, we, we've got a consulting business where we're helping uh, energy companies and investors figure out you know, answers to problems. We've got a uh, an insights business that's essentially research. And then we help uh, energy companies, both energy transition and traditional oil and gas companies, uh, raise money and do transactions, kind of investment banking activities. So we're, we're based in Houston. We got about 45 people and um, are in the middle of some very exciting times for energy. So glad to be on your podcast today. So you got a lot of, you get, you get a pulse and a feel from a lot of different angles with what you just described. Uh, with, with the recent OPEC meeting stalemate, uh, what feedback have you got, gotten and how do you think that's going to affect the oil market? Yeah, so OPEC sort of threw a monkey wrench into things. Uh, you know, we'd spent the last, you know, all the way back to February of 20. They made the market bad, then COVID showed up. So we had a market share battle plus COVID and oil tank to the 20s and then went negative briefly. Fast forward, they pretty quickly turned the ship reduced supply earlier this year, Saudi took even more oil off the market. So OPEC was, I think, managing the oil markets artfully. Price was up, but not too dramatic. Demand was fine. Um, you know, 70 is better than 50 for them and for everybody involved in the sector. And then we have this kerfuffle uh, at the most recent meeting here at the beginning of July where uh, Saudi and UAE couldn't, couldn't agree. What's it mean? Um, I think it's I think it's encouraging that oil price hasn't fallen more. Right, the risk of this uh, is that the the cooperation that they've had turns into fighting, and when those guys fight, oil doesn't go down a dollar; it goes down ten dollars or twenty dollars. And so, uh, I think that what we're seeing is it's a disagreement, but not a fight, and that's translating to some softness and uncertainty in the oil markets, but. Um, I think that, that right now, given that COVID demand is picking back up and the market inventories are drawing, things are tightening, we're sort of in a market where we're innocent until proven guilty around this OPEC debate. And so we're watching it very carefully, but um, it, it feels like it's a bump, not a derail. Those that say oil is going to $100 a barrel, is that possible within the next 12 months in your analysis? 
Um, I didn't think so until this until this uh, uh, OPEC meeting. So my view has been above 85, demand starts to go away. That's something OPEC doesn't want. They've got five, six million barrels a day of excess capacity. So price goes too high, call it 85 plus WTI. They'll bring more barrels back and avoid that demand disruption. On the downside, demand is improving. Inventories have corrected. And so you look at that and you say, ah, I think maybe 55 was probably the, the low end of the spectrum. So 55 and 85 was felt to me like the range. You don't know what OPEC's going to do. They don't bring barrels back. Oil could go higher. I wouldn't have said 100 is in the equation. Now I would say it is. The risk, though, is 40 is probably also in the equation if this fighting broke out amongst the countries. So I think we went from 55, 85 to probably 40 to 100. And I realize you can drive a truck through that range, but commodity commodities can be volatile. So how do you do an economic forecast, though? Like you said, if you're doing a discounted cash flow model, what do you use? Yeah, well, the good news is if you're really thinking about longer term, you know, if you're thinking about a project or the life of a well or a field or a company, they've got 10 to 20 years worth of reserves. And so you can, I don't think oil is going to be 100 average or 40 average. I'm, I'm running 65. It might be a little bit better than that, but I tend to think about these probabilities. I think the probability of 100's low and 40's low, I think the probability of that initial range is quite a bit higher. And if you ask me to run a point estimate for the next 18 months, I run 65. And that's, you know, coincidentally about where the next 18 month strip looks today. Last year, we saw oil go negative about $40. Is that a once in a generation type of thing we're going to witness? Or is it a possibility again with uh, the way things are? Um, those were crazy times. We had record demand destruction, I mean, unprecedented demand destruction uh, in, in a very rapid period of time. And so is it possible? Absolutely, because if it happens once, it can happen again. Uh, you also had some machinations in the oil market with some of the the funds that own oil, the USO uh, ETF thing. So uh, is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? Very low probability. I think the, the realistic bottom for oil prices is always somewhere around cash costs. And that's going to be in the, you know, for the marginal barrel, the stripper well in, in Texas and Oklahoma, that's somewhere in the 20s to high 20s. So you know, realistically, bad oil prices are 25 or 30. Uh, negative, just like we saw last time, negative is going to be very, very, uh, both unlikely and very short in duration. Torque Resources is an exploration company establishing a portfolio of premier copper gold early stage projects in Chile. Torque's management and technical teams have a strong track record of raising capital, discovery, and monetization of exploration successes. The company's Margarita Copper Gold project is located within the prolific coastal Cordillera Belt in Chile, which hosts some of the world's largest and most profitable copper mines. The Margarita project possesses excellent discovery potential for a major copper discovery due to the strength of the alterations system, large-scale magnetic targets, and the presence of copper oxide mineralization. Drilling is anticipated to begin in Q3 of this year. Torque trades in Canada under TORQ and on the OTC under TRBMF. To learn more, go to torqueresources.com. That's torqueresources.com.
Again, where I'm at in Michigan, a year ago, I was paying $1.85, $1.95 per gallon, and I'm paying upwards of $3.50 now. So that's, you know, almost a double in a year. Where do you see United States uh, gas prices going under the Biden administration? We know they took the permit away from the Keystone XL pipeline. My governor here in Michigan wants to shut down an oil and gas pipeline from Canada under the Straits of Mackinac. Where's the trend going here for gas prices in America? Yeah, so I think in the near term, higher. The reason being, uh, we've got pretty inelastic demand, at least call it for the next six to 12 months, because people didn't do anything or go anywhere for a year and they want to go. And if gas costs $350 or $450, they're going. That sort of inelastic demand will wane uh, as as we sort of run through stimulus money and people get the bug out of there, you know, it's like they don't care what it costs right now. They're going to care what it costs in 22 and 23. So I, I think that, that we think about, you know, oil in the seventies, uh, gasoline in the three, depending on where you're at, 275 to 375 range. It's a little higher on the coast. Um, I think that that's probably here for a while. And it's going to be, people are going to be indifferent for a while. And then the elasticity comes back and it's going to be more of a demand risk. So that's why I say this $85 oil number, $4 gasoline, eh, I think that will matter in 22. So I don't think it's in OPEC's best interests or frankly, the, the U.S. producers' interests to have prices go too high because would you rather make 70 for five years? or 85 for five months? And I think the answer is you want the five-year $70 price. So, so you don't let it go too high. And the powers that be politically, you know, Jimmy Carter didn't do too well against Reagan in that environment either, right? And as you mentioned that, I remember my grandfather uh, growing up in Michigan, he actually put an oil tank in the ground with his own pump because he built the house in the 70s. So people back then, uh, you know, they, they treated oil differently than we do now. They were worried about that that oil embargo and, and shortages. I think one thing, Bill, that uh, you asked about the political environment, I do think that from a traditional oil and gas perspective, we've got to assume that the government is not going to be particularly supportive of expansion of hydrocarbons in any form, whether that's moving it or consuming it. And so that that's natural gas, coal, oil, um, you know, this carbon issue, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, this carbon issue is real. And so, you know, it's going to be hard to expand our fossil fuel system uh, under the current administration. And frankly, that's a reflection of sort of how the general public institutional investors are thinking about things. Hydrocarbons are now viewed as bad, global warming, climate, et cetera. And so, uh, expanding the system is going to be tough. And what that probably translates to is it makes it a little more, more expensive. Are you factoring into some of your discounted cash flow me- uh, um, measurements or uh, calculations, increased taxes for oil companies, even if they're not here today with the whole ESG and net zero carbon emissions movements? How are you factoring that into your analysis? Yeah, qualitatively more than quantitatively right now. You know, corporate income tax is probably going up uh, under the current administration. That's all companies, not just oil and gas companies. I think the qualitative assessment is 
It's just the cost of business is going up. If How long does it take a permit? It's going to take longer and cost a little bit more. Everything's going to have some inflation to it because, um, you know, the administration and, and state governments, they'd rather have green power than hydrocarbon power. And so how do you do that? You subsidize green power and you you penalize hydrocarbon power. So it's it's qualitatively in my analysis, not quantitatively, but the cost of business of being in the traditional oil and gas business is going up. Can you, from a realist perspective, just tell us how realistic you think that some of these stated goals with the Paris Accord and such, and even with our own current government in Washington, D.C., how realistic are they in terms of the transition from hydrocarbons to the green economy? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. And anyone that's historically been in the oil and gas business is immediately painted with the brush that says, oh, you're biased. Um, I think we've got to be realistic about this. And so what are the realities? The realities are that we're past the tipping point around trying to get to net zero. Greta Thunberg and, and individuals around the world want lower carbon. Corporations, Amazon, Google, et cetera, making net carbon commitments, net zero commitments. You then look at institutional investors that are saying, be better at ESG, get your carbon down. Um, and then the final piece of it is the government, which is, you know, Europe's been there for a while. Our government wants that as well. That's an overwhelming push toward lower carbon. So that's practical. Then you've also got to be practical about what, how hard and how long it takes to get there. And the answer is without a serious climate disaster as a catalyst or without massive uh, push, regulatory push by coordinated by governments around the world, um, this thing's going to take a while. So I would encourage all of your listeners to you go to the International Energy Agency's website and, and there's they just published a big report on net zero by 2050 and the pathway to get there. It is incredibly complicated and involves an unpractical amount of global cooperation. It's going to take a lot of capital. The capital's there. Money wants to invest in this space to decarbonize. Government's going to do it. Institutional investors are going to do it. But uh, just the, the, the logistics of changing the way we do things will take time. And so it's a long-winded answer to your question. I think of this as... Um, we are going to be using hydrocarbons as little as possible, but we're still going to need a lot. We're 100 million barrels a day right now. I think by 2050, we're probably still at 50 to 75 million barrels a day because you can't get cars to electric fast enough. You can't transition all of these. You, know, you can't have 100% renewable power without a bunch of batteries. You can't. The battery technology is not good enough yet. So... We will spend a huge amount of money around the globe in the process of decarbonizing. And until we have a carbon tax globally and a lot more money invested, it's going to be slow. So I think you've got to think of this as a dual pronged uh, uh, system that's going to see uh, hydrocarbons decline, but fairly gradually 
while all of the new technologies that allow us to get energy and power uh, on a lower carbon basis, those develop. And I read a Wall Street Journal article uh, recently where they made the argument that because of the push for the green economy, there's been an underinvestment in oil, which could actually be bullish for oil in the near to midterm. Do you agree with that thesis? 100%. Uh, if we think about how did we get it, how did we get in a low oil price environment? The U.S. went from 5 million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day. Well, that's because we spent a bunch of money and, and we're just going crazy in the shale boom. The U.S. production's fallen now down to below 11 million barrels a day. And we're under-investing in the business because you might get penalized by the government. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID. OPEC's got 5 million barrels a day of excess capacity. There's just all of these overhangs that have kept investment fairly low. And so um, the U.S. spoiled the party last go-round. They're not going to be able to spoil the party this go-round because we're not investing the money here. Rig counts down by 70% from where it was in 2014. And so the U.S. is not going to spoil the party. OPEC looks cohesive, which means they're not going to spoil the party. And so oil's not going to be 50. It's going to be closer to 70 or 75 or 65 or something like that. So you cover the energy markets. Is oil the commodity you're most bullish on or what energy metal or commodity are you most bullish on? Yeah, so uh, I like the oil dynamic because it's a global commodity. I do think we've underinvested, and um, and I think the energy transition says we have a long slope down. So oil sitting at seventy, less exciting than when it was at fifty, right? And just in terms of the move, we're already up a bunch. I'd rather own oily equities than oil, if you will, because I think they they discount you know, prices in the 50s, not in the 60s or 70s. Uh, so I like oil better than I like gas. Coal's a whole different animal, kind of uninvestable. Um, you know, the work we've done on sort of the EV supply chain would say that things like, you know, copper to us looks really interesting because of the combination of its consumption and batteries, but also renewables as well. And so, uh, copper's interesting. It's up a bunch too. So back to the same thing. I'd rather own copper equities than copper. I'd rather own oil equities than, than oil. Um, and and I think we've got a couple of years here where uh, we're climbing the wall of worry on those. Oh, there's too much supply or we've got a energy transition or this or that. I think that that they're cheap and you make money on them as a, as a fairly patient couple year investment. And within the oil equities, is there a particular place where you like to park your money? Yeah, never park your money. Always invest your money. Uh, but, <laughs> Rent, not buy? <laughs> yeah, uh, when, I, when I think about exposure, um, my favorite area continues to be the Permian Basin, lowest cost, uh, very significant infrastructure out there. So when you're playing a commodity game, the cost curve always matters. Permian's got very low cost oil. Uh, and again, the equities are, are pretty cheap. So I like those producers, you know, the um, Diamondback, Devon, Pioneer, uh, to name some of the larger caps. So to me, producers are more interesting than oil field service companies right now. I like them better than the midstream or the refiners. 
So, uh, you know, ENPs and particularly Permian ENPs would be my favorite spot. Okay, excellent. And if a listener wants to get in touch with you, Dan, what would be the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so uh, our website, uh, www.pickeringenergypartners.com. Uh, we've got a, an email there for folks to reach out. And we're always interested in talking to people who are interested in energy. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Dan, for your insights. And I look forward to having you on the show again. Yeah, Bill, that was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.